Welcome to the DTP podcast for March 2024, volume 62, number three. My name's David Fazakli, and I'm DTP's deputy editor. Hello, I'm James Cave, editor-in-chief. Many thanks for joining us for this podcast, which we are recording in the uh, second week of of February. Uh, Before we get on to the content of our March issue, I just want to ask you, James, about a couple of, well, I suppose they are related issues, but they're prescribing issues. Um, The first is a short opinion piece that was published in the BMJ at the weekend uh, by Ramia Matthew, a GP and regular BMJ columnist, um, talking about prescribing. Do you want to say a bit about what she said? Yeah, I mean, yeah, she's, I mean, she's just really, I suppose, highlighting that therapeutics is really important. It can make a huge change to people's lives. And yet, actually, in the clinical consultation, it's, it's sort of often skipped over. And we don't spend enough time discussing medication with patients, the positives, the negatives, how it should be taken, you know, what are the expectations. And, you know, she feels that as a consequence, compliance and adherence are uh, a big issue. And she's also raised the the constant, I think, um, to and fro from hospital outpatients versus GPs around prescribing um, and how there's a lot of actual resource required in general practice if you're going to start prescribing drugs that were in the past prescribed in in outpatients or by hospital physicians so it's, it's just an interesting article um which i think is very uh of the moment and i think highlights how important you know therapeutics are and how important it is that people feel confident in prescribing and you know, I'd like to think that one of the things that we hopefully do at DTB is is work on that and help people to feel more confident about what they're doing. I thought what was what was particularly interesting was was actually raising this issue that actually isn't prescribing often the, the bit that's relegated right to the end of the consultation, um, or and as you say, almost not included in the consultation if it's a referral from from secondary care, but but. Yes, shouldn't it be, you know, the most important thing you you talk about if you're starting a, a medicine um, or checking how the patient's getting on? It should be should be the, kind of one of the key issues in, in any consultation. It, absolutely, and I think one of the things that you can do to really help with that is what's called indication prescribing. So when when I write out patients' um, medication, I'll put, you know aspirin 75 milligrams take one a day to thin your blood or i might say you know ramipril five milligrams take one a day for your blood pressure so at the least um there is something there which can remind patients about which or what each of their drugs do but i think it's really is important i mean i'm going back a bit now but when i used to do a a christmas post round when they discovered that i was a medical student i let i'd have a queue of postmen saying take me through my tablets and tell me what they're for. And, you know, they wouldn't have a clue about any of the medication they were taking or what it was for. So I think we have come on quite a long way from then. But I think it's really important that GPs work with patients because we know that concordance and um, confidence in medication is so much improved if you have spent some time discussing them with patients. And the other important matter and it kind of links to the second issue I just want to touch on is the complexity of prescribing and you know drugs have got more complex and the process of prescribing is is in itself more more complex and a good illustration is 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 the doax 
um, obviously they've made a, a major difference to um, patient care. But what's a good example of this is when you have to swap people from one to another. And, and it just reminded me this week with the announcement that the price of a Pixaban has dropped, um, that we've got a whole cohort of people who the NHS has converted to a Doxaban. Um, and what's going to happen? I, this is this is we knew this was going to happen. I think you raised it when when Edoxaban was made the DOAC of choice, and um, we knew that because Epixaban had been licensed early, it was going to come off patent soon. And sure enough, it has. So now the NHS England is saying that actually Epixaban is the DOAC of choice, and I think the complexity it, it, DOACs are complex drugs, and they have some little stings in the tail. So in fact, I had a patient recently who joined the practice who was on a Pixaban and the previous GP hadn't clocked that this patient was now under 60 kilograms and therefore they needed a reduction in their dose. And whilst, you know, you get a reduction in dose with a Doxaban as well at 60 kilo, you don't, re you reduce the Doxaban dose if your creatinine clearance is less than 50, but with a Pixaban, it's if their creatinine is more than 133. And it's this sort of complexity that um is so difficult and it's i think one of the reasons you know one of the issues that um we need to to sort of concentrate on you know good therapeutic prescribing takes time and effort i, I don't think it you know some gps talk about how they're not they don't feel perhaps um qualified um they're totally qualified they can prescribe prescribing is the act of simply looking for the right drug, using the BNF, using the EMC, looking at the patient, making the right choice. That's prescribing. You could be qualified to do that, but you need the time to do it well. And as you say, it, it shouldn't be relegated to the last few minutes of a consultation. I mean, as you say, we picked this up in, in an editorial last year, just saying, well, what's going to happen when um, the generic Apixaban appears? And what struck me again with this is the price difference. I mean, it's now... What's something like five pounds a month instead of fifty pounds a month? Um, and I had, a, I had a quick look at the the prescribing data, and the growth in adoxaban prescribing, presumably as a result of the NHS initiative, is it, it's shot up from one hundred eighty thousand prescriptions a month um, last January to over four hundred thousand prescriptions a month in November. Um, well, whereas the Pixaban stayed relatively flat. So even if you do a sort of back of the envelope calculation. The cost now, the cost difference between prescribing those two drugs is almost a hundred million pounds a year. Um, so in, interesting, and it, and is that anywhere near the sort of discount the NHS would have achieved in the brief period when it had done the deal for Adoxaban? Well, it's just so short-sighted, but I presume it's because contracts and and financial envelopes are, are timed in years rather than looking a bit further forward and and you get that sort of what feels like a really crazy decision in in retrospect but as you say we we could see it coming down the track but there we are right should we move on to your editorial um which is about consumers and the legacy from various publications that we we've loved and, and know about yeah, I mean, this this really follows on from, well, I suppose if you listen to last month's podcast, we talked about the sad news of the death of, of, of Sid Wolf. Um, 
And, and Sid was part of that influential group of people who established uh, organisations who really championed, I suppose, the well-being of the of well, it was the consumer movement or, or the well-being of patients. Um, people like Arthur Callot and Harold Aaron, who set up the Medical Letter, our own Andrew Herxheimer, who who created DTB. And I guess along with Sid, they, they've all played a major role over the last 60 years in helping protect patients from harms of, of medicines. Um, and I suppose what marked them out was their willingness to challenge uh, views uh, and challenge clinical practice that has questionable basis. So really it's just about using the editorial to reflect on their achievements um, and yeah, the need to carry on the work that they started. Yes, and as you say, I think we're very lucky that um, DTB has managed to continue to do that under the umbrella of the BMJ, and um, that's certainly been helpful because a lot of these publications, I think, now uh, are behind paywalls. I know Worst Pills, Best Pills, which I think was established by Sid, um, need you know you need to to pay to be able to access it now, which is which is a great shame. And simply the medical letter, and you know, and ourselves, you know, it's it's all they're all subscription um, publications now. Um, and I think what's what's particularly interesting is that they've all got a focus on yes, recognizing that drugs do have an enormous part to play in in improving patients' health and well being, um, but also that a lot of them have quite difficult adverse effects or problems um, and as Andrew once said you know the, the adverse effects are often either unrecognized or ignored sometimes denied often hidden or attributed to other causes so uh, it's good I think that there are organizations such as ourselves such as uh, medical letter worst pills best pills who will talk about the, the harmful side of, of medicines as well as the positive side because I think you know it's important that clinicians get that balance and can explain to patients you know yes there are you know, benefits of, of medicines but there are also always harms and we we need to make sure that that balance is is managed i think that that is the key issue and i remember i think and you talk, you talk about andrew discussing the idea that um, harms have a time dimension and i'm just thinking about how long it can sometimes take for medications harms to come to light and i think is it omicor um, that just recently has been shown to increase the risk of atrial fibrillation in patients taking it. Now, Omacor was licensed, it must be at least 30 years ago now. So it's taken an enormous length of time for that side effect to become apparent. So, um, yes, I, you know, I think it, it's really important that there are these um, consumer organisations out there that are still looking at the whole therapeutic landscape in with just a critical eye and just making sure we're not missing things that are really important and and the issue you know the, the issues are still there um you you, know, you pointed out in editorial last year about the you know the the latest moves to fast track medicines based on uh, limited or, or no outcome evidence um, and we've highlighted our concerns within clizaran in previous podcasts um, and we've got concerns over the ever closer links between kind of government, medicines regulators, pharma companies, health technology agencies, and the NHS. That really does it risk the impartiality of decision making over new, over new medicines. So you know, th there's still work to do. There's always work to do. Here we are. 
Okay. Okay. Let's let's move on from that and consider a couple of our um, DTB select items. As you get and pick up, um, one picks up the theme of of, of harm, um, and the other picks up the theme of theme of efficacy. So let's look at the first one, which was a coroner's uh, prevention of future death report. Uh, do you want to expand on that one? Yeah, so um, we, do, we we look at these from time to time, and they can be very instructive and, and interesting. And this one um, is a coroner's letter to NHS England on the basis of a case where a woman um, who'd been on warfarin for several years developed some back pain and was given tramadol, um, and then a further prescription for tramadol fifteen days later. On the first day, where of her uh, prescription, her INR was 3.3, so entirely in the right range. And then two days after the second prescription, so 17 days after she started her tramadol, she was admitted to hospital feeling unwell, and her INR was found to be 11.6. And despite having what the coroner called reversal medication, which I presume was vitamin K, she deteriorated and she died two days later of a subarachnoid hemorrhage and intraparenchymal bleeding so and obviously we we look into this because you know sometimes i think coroners can pick up things which um it's difficult to see connections or understand if there may be links but actually um what we've picked up is in fact there have been several case reports of an interaction between tramadol and warfarin and indeed in 2006 um new zealand's i think equivalent of the mhra noted an issue and actually advised that um, giving patients on wharf and tramadol would require close monitoring. So um, this is a case of a adverse effect that's now being picked up. Um, and I think it's a really important one. And, I, and what's interesting is it seems like the interaction is unpredictable. Um, this may be something to do with tramadol's metabolism. Um, but I think it's really important that as prescribers, we ask ourselves, you know, do we have patients on warfarin and tramadol? Do we need to actually be doing a quick search and picking these up and, and just checking that we're on, on top of this? Um, because this obviously is a significant uh, adverse effect if and when it happens. And I think the coroner looked at the BNF at the time and said, oh, it's not reported in there as... I mean, as you say, sometimes it's it's you have to read a bit between the lines of what the coroner's reports seem to be saying, but it certainly wasn't in 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 the BNF as an, as an interaction. It might have been, you know, as we found it, you you can find records of it elsewhere. Um, but it now has now has been yeah, added. I was, was going to butt in, but I I looked at the EMC, the, the you know this summary of product characteristics for tramadol this afternoon, and it's not not in there yet. Okay, but it but it is now in the BNF. Yeah. So, you know, it, it. I've always thought I'd, I always go to the summary of product characteristics if I want to know the the absolute nuts and bolts. And here we are with a situation where I wouldn't have found it there. And have you have you looked at your prescribing? Do you have people on combinations of two? Um, I haven't. Um, I will do it. I don't like tramadol. Um, so I, I use it incredibly sparingly. Um, so and I never prescribe it as a as a repeat medication. So um, I'm hoping that I haven't, but it's something to look up when I get back into work tomorrow. Okay, thank you. And then the second select item, which was a interesting study. Um, when I first read it, I was 
try to work out where this is coming from. But anyway, it's a study is whether if you prescribe a COX inhibitor with levonorgestrel emergency hormonal contraception, what does it do to the efficacy? Um, so what 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 did they find? Well, this is one of those studies which I just love because it's it's got lots of things going on. So it's a study from Hong Kong. It involved eight hundred and sixty women. Um, mostly of Chinese ethnicity and perhaps really importantly with a median BMI of 21. And uh, these women were randomized. They'd all had uh, unprotected sex and they were randomized to either receive levonorgestrel 1.5 milligrams with a placebo or levonorgestrel 1.5 milligrams with piroxicam 40 milligrams. And they looked at the pregnancy rate in the two groups. Now, they were expecting a pregnancy rate of about 4.5%. And what's interesting is they had actually quite a significantly lower pregnancy rate in both groups. In the peroxigram group, there was only one pregnancy, which was 0.2%. And in the placebo group, there were uh, 418 women, which is one point, sorry, there was seven pregnancies in that 418 women, which was 1.7%. So there was a significant lowering in pregnancy rate in the group that had the peroxicam as well. But this is one study done in a very discreet group of patients with a BMI of 21 on the whole. So this is probably not something that is reproducible or we should be considering doing as a matter of course from now on. And it was interesting to see that the UK Faculty of Sexual and Reproductive Healthcare, they've obviously looked at it, but they didn't think it was necessary to make any changes in its guidance yet to this one sing- single study. Um, but it, but a it, very interesting idea. Um, and, and where this goes next, we'll have to wait and see. Yeah, yeah, it, it is fascinating because, of course, levonorgestrel gestural emergency contraception is less effective in people with obesity. And we do have things like olipristal, which is known to be more effective than levonorgestrel. So, and of course, you also have the copper intuterine device, which is probably the most effective method. So there are more effective methods to use. And um, the thing that I just wondered, and this may be, I don't know, just a wonder, how come they had so much lower pregnancy rate than we expected? And is it because they actually, in the in the in the uh, research they were actually supervised when they took their medication is it something you know i don't know i don't know how many women or people who come to me for emergency contraception then don't take it but i just it's fascinating to think you know they're expecting 4.5 percent pregnancies and they got 0.2 percent and 1.7 percent what what's going on there i just think it's fascinating anyway moving on yeah, yeah, and, and just, I mean, just before we leave that, I mean, they did that, as you said, the median kind of interval between intercourse and treatment was was only eighteen hours, whereas I mean that these levonorgestrel wasn't it licensed up to seventy two hours after for a gap of up to seventy two hours. So what was it the fact that it was much earlier? I don't know. I don't know. Be um, be interesting to look at the data in in, in more depth. But yes, okay. Um, let's move on to our final or our main article this month. Um, which is an overview of very low calorie diets in people with uh, type 2 diabetes. And James, you like this one. I'm a big fan and I'm so pleased that Roy Taylor agreed to do an article for us because this is 
this is game changing. And I hate that term game changing, but actually this is game changing. I, when I look back 30 years, when I started out in general practice, if you saw someone with type two diabetes, you'd give them a diet sheet, which basically told them to stop eating sugary things. And then you'd start them on an oral hypoglycemic agent, which wasn't necessarily metformin at that time. It, that came later. It would often be um, sulfonylurea or something. And on an average of about 10 years, these patients would have progressed to be taking insulin and they'd be putting on weight. And, you know, we didn't do anything to the underlying issue. And then along comes um, the counterpoint study in 2011 that showed that if you had a substantial weight loss in eight weeks, you could effectively cure non-insulin dependent diabetes. You could put them into remission. And then the direct study, which Roy Taylor was also heavily involved in in 2019, demonstrated that you could do this in primary care. And if patients lost weight, I think they had 36% of patients in remission at two years in the direct study. So this is Roy, if you like, um, laying out the evidence for very low calorie diets, but it's done in a really practical way. Um, and there's lots of take-home elements to it. I think the take-home elements that I took from it is that people's individual ability to tolerate fat in their liver and pancreas is very different. So you can still have people who you don't consider to be obese who have type 2 diabetes because actually they have a liver and pancreas with too much fat in it for them. Uh, and so that was an interesting learning point for me that actually a very low calorie diet, 800 calories a day using milkshakes and non-starchy vegetables to prevent constipation, you can expect to lose about 10 kilos at 12 months. The other really interesting learning point for me was do not exercise if you're going to do this, because particularly if you're elderly, because if you exercise, you just increase your appetite, you don't lose weight. Um, so, and also the other thing uh, was that you know, a third of people will get into remission if you do this, but also they'll reduce the amount of antihypertensives they're taking and other drugs as well. So it's got benefit after benefit after benefit. And I I would urge if if you haven't clocked this yet as a prescriber and as a worker in primary care or anywhere, then it's really important that you read our article or you buy his book if you have to. Um, it's a really good book. It's called um, Life Without Diabetes by Roy Taylor. You can get it secondhand off Amazon cheapest chips. Um, and uh, it's transformational. You know, we should hopefully be be turning type 2 diabetes around and looking to everyone to give them the opportunity to go into remission. I mean, if, again, if, 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 for me, the important messages were the deprescribing ones that um, people can stop taking all, well, a, a number of the oral agents they might have been taking before and also. Uh, you can reduce the number of antihypertensives that they're taking, and and that seemed to be some some or well, their experience seemed to be that some clinicians were a bit reluctant to stop antihypertensives and needed to see the evidence that that is the case. Yes, no, that was that was fascinating. He had to you know show the graphs from the counterpoint study that showed that blood pressure drops, and actually, I think in the direct study they would stop all but one of the antihypertensives because GPs were a bit anxious about stopping them all. But yeah, um, it, it is a remarkable thing. Um, and it's it's fascinating because, of course, Roy Taylor's most of his work has been around uh, MRI scanning, but it was that, it was the 
MRI scanning and the developments of that, which enabled them to look at fat and glycogen storage. And that was what I think led them to this to this remarkable counterpoint and, and the direct study, which has shown that significant weight loss through a very low calorie diet will put a third of people into remission. And although the rollout of this has been, up to now, has been a sort of pilot gradual rollout that's been available through the NHS in England uh, through its type 2 diabetes path to remission program and it is from on their website now it says the service will be available in all areas of England from April 2024 Um, so it's going to be made available for anyone between the ages of 18 and 65 who've got a diagnosis of type 2 diabetes within the last six years and have got a BMI over 27 um, or over 25 if people are from a black Asian or other ethnic uh, group so it's the rollout is carrying on um, and there's a whole section on the NHS England website devoted to it which is worth a look is it in your is it in your area at the moment it's not it's not at the moment but there are plenty of resources I mean the Newcastle academic website have got uh, information on it um you've got the diabetes uk they've got a big section on it um and as i say roy taylor's book um will tell you everything you need to know about it um uh, so there are plenty of resources out there that people can use and and of course you have in the wings um drugs like semaglutide now at the moment we know that they will achieve a similar amount of weight loss but we need to wait to see whether they have the same impact on diabetes remission as um, very low calorie diet. But it looks like it feels almost like smoking, isn't it? Where we had a situation where we had lifestyle and it looks like increasingly we're now going to have a whole lot of other elements that we can offer to help support people in, in losing weight and um, banishing their, their diabetes. Okay, well, thank you. Thank you for that. Um, You can find these and all our articles on our website at dtb.bmj.com. And you can also find all our other podcasts. They're listed on our website. Just find the podcast button at the top of the webpage or from your usual podcast provider. Uh, If you want to get involved with DTB, happy to have your contributions, suggestions topics um, or help peer review so just email us at dtb at bmj.com and many thanks for listening and we hope you'll be able to join us in a month's time for the april podcast 